Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in French Studies, discussions with scholars of France and the Francophone world about their new books. I'm your host, Roxanne Panchassi. My guest today is Jennifer Cazenave, the author of An Archive of the Catastrophe, the unused footage of Claude Lanzmann's Shoah, and the book was published by the State University of New York, or SUNY Press, in 2019. Hi there, Jennifer. Hi, Roxanne. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with me today. Thanks for having me. Could you get us started by telling us a little bit more about yourself and what got you interested in the subject of the book? So I'm uh, currently an assistant professor of French at Boston University, and I have uh, my training is in comparative literature and film studies. And I was trained both at Northwestern in the U.S. and then at the University of Paris Set in Paris. And I got interested in the uh, Shoah outtakes Actually, as a uh, PhD student, I learned about the existence of these outtakes, and they had been transferred uh, from Paris to Washington, D.C. And the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. has this incredible film archive Mm -hmm. that's existed since the 90s. And this was one of their first um, major projects, which was to transfer uh, these outtakes to D.C., but also preserve them. And then around 2008, to start digitizing them and actually making them available online. And so from, you know, having gained the knowledge um, of the existence of the outtakes, I had a fellowship at the, the Holocaust Museum in D.C., and I just spent six months uh, just watching everything that was available then, which was not everything, about 100 hours. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was quite something. And um, I went to Paris after that uh, for a couple of years to do the second half of the Ph.D. And there's actually a field in, in France, which is Genèse Cinematographique, so it's uh, genetic criticism, and genetic criticism never really took off in the U.S. as much as it did in France. Hmm. And it's uh, originally a um, more of a discipline in, in literature, so it concerns the study of sort of the, the making of a work. So you look at, I don't know, the drafts of a, a major novel, and you look at notes, editions, things that were omitted. So you use different paper archives to um, determine how a project evolved. And then that transferred on to cinema. So film studies in France took that on in the 2000s. And so when I went to Paris, there was actually a whole seminar dedicated to jeunesse cinématographique. And that sort of gave me a framework for thinking, you know, how do you, how do you write about outtakes and how do you write about the making of a film? And Shoah was actually a, a peculiar case because most uh, scholars who are working on the making of films all films have outtakes, but often outtakes are not preserved. Mm. Um, that 
obviously has changed today with various technologies, but especially for films in the 60s or 70s, you wouldn't, all these reels would take up a lot of space. So what scholars typically do is that they, they look at storyboards or uh, scripts, various versions of scripts, how a film also evolved in terms of the story it was trying to tell. Um, it will look at bills or financing, funding, etc. And I didn't really have any of that. There's very little paper trail that was transferred to DC. So I was really working with the images and then the, the transcripts. But I also had to try to adapt a little bit my project to even the, the French field of jeunesse cinématographique. Now, Jennifer, I think most listeners will be familiar with Shoah, the film, the, the finished film. Um, but could you give us, just for some background, a little bit of information about the film itself and about Lanzmann, the director? So Lanzmann um, made the film between 1973 and, and 1985. He was originally commissioned by the State of Israel to make a film about the destruction of European Jews. Mm. And he had uh, made one documentary before that called Why Israel, which came out in 1973. And prior to that, he had really, um, I mean, he had been a, a journalist. He had worked uh, in Les Modernes, and he then later on became the chief editor of, of Les Modernes for, for many decades. But by the time he was asked to make Shoah, he really only had made one film and he you know, decided to just start by doing a lot of research. And little by little, the, I mean, time passed because there was so much research to be done, both in terms of reading books that had been published at the time. And then he actually had to find people to interview and he was looking both for survivors and perpetrators and, and bystanders. So even that process took several months and several years to actually identify. Mm -hmm. So while he began in 73, he he didn't actually start filming until 1976. And that's when he did the first uh, interview. So it, it took almost a good three years for him to actually go from sort of the concept that was the film and then the actual um, filming process. And even in 76, the, the project kept evolving. And that's what's fascinating about um, the existence of the outtakes is that they allow us to see how you can have an idea for a film and then you might meet someone and that changes your concept. Right. And so it, it did take him several years and he really, the, the bulk of the interviews that he ended up filming, he filmed between 1978 and 1979. And then by October, 1979, he, he stopped um, filming and at that point had accumulated 230 hours of footage yeah. and then spent five and a half years in Paris, in the suburbs of Paris, in Saint-Cloud, um, editing the film with um, his editor, Ziva Postek, various editors that actually you know worked with him. But she was his primary. Then he had a sound editor, Sabine Memou, and then a whole crew of individuals. Um, and they progressively narrowed it down to a nine and a half hour film, which is extremely long. And Shoah is known for being this monumental film about the Holocaust. Um, but nine and a half hours actually seems um, short in comparison to the 230. I, and I should also add that Shoah is, is known for having omitted archival footage entirely. So mm. this is also, this explains why Lanzmann accumulated um, so many hours of filmed interviews, given that he already had decided that he would not include archival footage. So, Jennifer, when we're talking about the Shoah archive, does it matter to refer to the body of material that you're working with in this project alternately as archive, outtakes, 
unused footage? Are those just three ways of saying the same thing, mixing it up? Or do they have distinct meanings or resonances for you? Archive, unused footage, and outtakes. So that's a, that's a great question. Obviously, as I was writing the book, I was trying to alternate between terms <laughs> that I wasn't repeating <laughs> the same term. But the, the term archive, I included that one. Archive is not the same as outtakes or un, unused footage, but the Showa outtakes have become an archive mm. by the sheer fact that they were um, acquired by the United States Holocaust Museum in D.C., and they were literally transformed into a digital archive because everything has been preserved and digitized since. And it, the, you know, the Shoah archive is, is called the Claude Lanzmann um, Shoah collection. So it, it is mm. part of a collection that is, it's an archive within an archive. I think it's the sheer um, size of these outtakes that also warrant the, the term archive. If this was maybe 10 hours of footage, it might not, not necessarily be an archive. But when you're dealing with 220 hours of outtakes, it's it's monumental. Right. And the idea of the archive is also to sort of juxtapose what is known as a monumental film. And the fact that it actually ended up, Lanzmann produced this monumental film. But at the same time, over the course of making Shoah, he produced a monumental archive of Holocaust testimonies. It seems, too, that one of the things that distinguishes this collection of this archive is that it, you know, you mentioned this thing about how for other films, the unused footage doesn't get preserved. But in this case, the stakes of the preservation, and I'm sure there are other films where this is true, but that what, what is unique, one of the things that's unique about this is the size of the collection, but also the, the idea that the preservation of this unused footage is about not just the preservation of unused footage from a film and the history of this film, but that it is the preservation of testimony and memory. Yes. And that, that's, that's why I think also the term archive works well. And it's interesting that the Shoah outtakes are not in, I don't know, the Cinémathèque Française, for instance, in Paris. I mean, there are various reasons for that, but it's interesting that this footage is also now in a museum and part of a museum's collection um, because mm -hmm. it is, First and foremost, I mean, it, it, this is also what's very interesting is that these are testimonies, but testimonies filmed by a great filmmaker, great cinematographer. I mean, he had a, Lonsman had a, a fantastic crew. So you have two sides where you have, these are testimonies, but they're unlike testimonies that you might find in Holocaust testimony archives, like the, the Shoah Foundation um, at USC, for instance, because these were interviews but then they also have an aesthetic behind them. And there are specific choices that Lanzmann had in terms of when he filmed individuals. And he also had, um, for instance, language that he developed, you know, just gestures with his cinematographers so that they would do a certain close-up or another type of camera movement because there was also an aesthetic that he was looking for. So mm -hmm. it's at once precious documents. And this is why also Lanzmann never, um, never got rid of this. Initially, when he finished working on the film, I mean, he, the question that was posed, you know, what, what do you do with all of these cans and reels? And he stored some of them in his basement in Paris, and then some of them he was able to leave at the editing lab in, in Saint-Cruz. And it, you know, it took about nine years for the Holocaust Museum to, to you know, for them to work out uh, the transfer. But there was that time period where he held on to them because he knew that they were precious historical documents as testimonies. Mm -hmm. Holocaust, but there are also precious 
documents within the history of, um, of French cinema. You mentioned, Jennifer, that the paper archives for this project, your project, are fairly limited. Could you talk a little bit about your research and source material for this project? Not that the unused footage isn't big enough, but beyond the unused footage. So it's it's also an interesting case because Lanzmann said that he didn't have a logbook. So typically when you make a film, you know, every day you're going to say what you filmed, who you filmed, etc. So there was mm. no existence of the logbook, which posed a significant problem from the start, which is we didn't actually have dates for the interviews. And it, it took a lot of research um, for me to you know, things like he's wearing the same shirt, just little details for me to figure out actually a chronology for for these interviews. And that posed a problem also in terms of writing the book, because I could have written the book with using a chronology, but I didn't have that chronology. I just had 1973 to 1979. So that's already, it it poses an interesting problem when you don't have, when you don't have a, a paper trail, you have to find your own way of organizing the material and, and, and ask different kinds of questions. Um, one of the limits of, of the projects initially is when I, um, as a graduate student, when I first started looking at the material in 2008, the museum would only make available what they had preserved. So I, I mentioned earlier, it was around one, I think 120 hours out of the 220. And so even to write the dissertation, I didn't have the, the, the whole picture I had to make decisions. I had to tell a story, but I was missing half, you know, little less than half the the, the story. Um, and this is, as a doctoral student, I decided to uh, focus first on women because most of the women survivors, their interviews had been preserved and were available. So it gave me a um, homogenous group to, to work from. And women were an interesting case because there are a few women survivors in the finished film, mm-hmm. but there are relatively absent for them, their entirety of their four that appear um, and their, the combined length of their testimonies is around nine to 10 minutes. And they, they only appear once, they never reappear. So they, they function, for me, they function as a nice paradigm for thinking about even the outtakes, that it's not simply a question of what's visible or what's invisible, because women might be not so present in Shoah, but all of the interpreters are women, for instance. So you hear huh. women's voices throughout the film. So it changes, you know, you don't necessarily feel the absence of women because women's voices are so uh, present. One doesn't not necessarily know about the outtakes, but once you do, it actually makes you look at the finished film in a completely different light. So something you said earlier, Jennifer, makes me want to ask you about the, the nationality of the film. I think there are some people who might not ground the film or connect the film uh, as strongly as others to a history of French filmmaking, thinking about Lanzmann as a a French filmmaker and sort of locating it in that larger story of French cinema. For me, the question of it being a French film, it's not just a French film. I mean, it, it is because Lanzmann was French. It is a French film because his, um, Many members of his crew were um, extremely important members of the French New Wave. I'm, I'm thinking of his cameraman, William Chomsky, who worked with Godard and was an, really an important um, figure of um, French cinema in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. So there is something um, about also the way the, this film is made 
that for me is is very French just because of who's actually making it, even beyond uh, beyond Nozman. But I think you know we can think of Shoah also just as one of the greatest documentaries of all times, French or, or not French. And I think that's what's nice about cinema is that a film can have, you know, a, a nationality, but it can also just be part of this broader history of, of, um, of cinema. Um, because in a way, you know, it's, it's hard. The funding, for instance, is transnational because Israel commissioned Nozman to do this. But then at one point, Israel stopped funding the film and then... Um, the French government under Mitterrand at the end uh, really helped to give uh, funding in order to finish this film. Mm. So even in terms of its funding sources, it's it's sort of all over the map and has different sources that's not necessarily uh, French. And your question raises a very interesting point as well, because Lanzmann didn't include anyone French in the film. There's not a mm. single French person. Uh, what we have in the outtakes, he did um, interview uh, a Swiss man, Jean Pictet, who was part of the Red Cross. And then we also have another person who was part of the Red Cross, Maurice Rosset. So we, the film itself doesn't have any actual French survivors um, that, that Lonsman interviewed. But the language of the film uh, remains in part French. You have various languages, but it's interesting that Lonsman didn't opt to have uh, subtitles. Um, for instance, for Hebrew, he worked with an interpreter who was translating everything into French. So we're constantly, I like to think of the film as it's very much, the Finnish film is very much a film about the East and the extermination in the East. But we're constantly being pulled back to the West by means of Lanzmann's mother tongue and, and his mm-hmm. own presence. So the, the film and the outtakes themselves constantly oscillate between East and West. If I could just follow up on that a little bit, Jennifer, I wonder about how the making of the film in the context and in the moment uh, of the late 1970s and then its release in the mid 80s in France and elsewhere, um, what that context is in terms of, well, just to use the short form of, you know, Husso's the Vichy syndrome, like how we might connect those things, Shoa and that period from what is it by the time we get to the 1970s, the broken, you know, how, how we think about this film in relation to Marcel Ophel's work, you know, the sorrow and the pity, like just how you might situate it in relationship to a longer history of French cinema. And then also the very specific history of the Holocaust in France and, and filmmaking, but more than filmmaking. Now that's, that's a very important uh, question What's interesting about the French context, I mean, you mentioned Rousseau and, and um, Marcel Ophuls, is the debates that we start to have um, in cinema in actually in 1961. Jacques Rivette uh, publishes in the Cahier du Cinéma a text called On Objection, where he uh, condemns this uh, Holocaust film by Gilles Pontecorvo, who then go on to make um, The Battle of Algiers. And he made this film called Capo, which was set in a camp, and it uh, uh, revolved mainly around women in the camp. And one of the actresses was Emmanuelle Riva, who was in Hiroshima Mon Amour in 1959. And Capo came out in 59 um, in, in Italy, but it, there's a delayed reaction in terms of when it comes out in France. And so Rivette publishes this text in 1961, and, and it's sort of the first gesture towards how do we um, elaborate an ethics of representation? Mm. And how is cinema 
actually responsible for thinking these questions of what can we represent and how do we represent the Holocaust? Hmm. And so it's, it's interesting because I situate Lonsman very much in, in that context of um, specific French discourses around the limits of representation. And for him, he did ask a lot of questions um, when he undertook Shoah. It really became about, you know, how do you make a film and what can you use? What can you not use? And, and for him, part of the answer was, well, you don't use archival images mm. because archival images are not, for, for Lonsman, the extermination per se. The extermination would be um, in the gas chamber, for instance, and there's no footage of that. And there was a huge debate between Lonsman and, and Godard around this, that Godard was um, convinced that there's actually footage um, of the extermination. And Lonsman has said that there's no footage and he would have actually, if there had been footage, he would have destroyed it. If he had found anything while he was making Shoah. Mm. What you're saying in terms of um, the broken mirror and, and Vichy, it's interesting that Lonsman can't address necessarily that aspect of French history. Huh. Um, because there is, I mean, he could have, you know, interviewed um, French survivors and it's, as I mentioned earlier, the, the closest we get to France is, is Switzerland. But there is something, I think it is complicated when you make a film about your country hmm. on the one hand and, and your own uh, history, but I think also because the Holocaust involves so many different nationalities across Europe. It's also hard. He didn't want to make a film like Ophuls, Le Chagrin et la Pitié, you know, with just one French town. And maybe because of Ophiel's film, there was also a, a move a, away from, from that. Mm. But Lonsman did talk about the making of Shoah in his memoir, The Patagonian Hare, mm. which he published um, in 2009 in, in, in French, and then it was translated into English. But that was also in terms of methodology. I, I decided to distance myself a little bit from the memoir. You, the filmmaker has a vision or a version of the film that he made. As a scholar, I have a different version or a different vision um, based on the material that I that I found. So Lonsman in in the memoir doesn't um, he doesn't necessarily talk so much about he, he talks about the making of certain interviews. He talks a little bit about the editing. But what's interesting is that in another chapter when he talks about the war, he does have a, a chapter where um, in 1942, so he was living in Clermont-Ferrand, and his mother was in Paris, and he he went to visit her and he oh. had to have uh, false papers. He remembers, you know, the trains, the Germans, the dogs, the lights. Um, and he, he, you know, projects a lot onto that moment. There's something where he's remembering very much through the lens of Shoah and, and all the work that he, that he did on that, that period. And so there is a moment he does talk about that experience, but then he joined the resistance. So it's a very specific experience that he had. Um, he wasn't arrested and, and, and deported because and he was younger. He was, um, I think for 1942, he was 15. Hmm. So there are, there are ways in which in the memoir, actually World War II seems haunted by the work that he did on Shoah. And the way he narrates that story echoes a lot of the testimonies that he um, accumulated. And uh, there's that notion um that um, Landsberg came up with, Alison Landsberg, the prosthetic memory, which I use in, in, oh. in the book. And it's when you remember your own experience through, you know, the lens of a, of a bigger event, such as the Holocaust. 
And there are a lot of moments in, in the memoir where you do have that prosthetic lens. Um, and that's a way for him to talk about French history, but also to talk about the film that he made. You've already mentioned, Jennifer, this idea of the ethics of representation. And in that first chapter of the book, The Formation of a Paradigm, I mean, you do a number of things that sort of eat away at this mythological figure of the auteur and point to the ways in which Lanzmann is not the only, that the film is not the unique and sole creation of Lanzmann, that it was a product of its moment and that it involved a team of collaborators. And I just want to ask you a little bit, say a little bit more about some of the things you talk about in that chapter, the context of previous trials, trials prior to the making of Shoah, the idea of this, again, ethics of representation, um, and the way in which the film created a paradigm, set a tone for subsequent works on the subject. So the, the trial is an interesting starting point, also just to think about modes of witnessing and, and different um, ways in which to bear witness. And obviously there, there's a lot of difference between the trial and then making a film. So in terms of what I, I was saying earlier about the, the, the discourses, um, regarding the ethics of representation, something that interested me is Shoah is known for, you know, being the expression of a certain paradigm, uh, mainly through the exclusion of archival images, amongst others. But what the book tries to do is to sort of reframe these ethics and to think about also the ethics of editing. Um, for Lanzmann, he, he does talk in his memoir about the editing phase, but very briefly, and he the way he summarizes it, he says, you know, choice is murder. And again, it's a you know prosthetic framing of, of the question, but I think for him it was incredibly difficult to actually have to make these cuts because you're excluding, you know, a person, you're excluding a survivor, you're excluding an entire story from, from the film. And he in the memoir doesn't actually ever mention the transfer of the outtakes to Washington, DC, which is an interesting detail. Uh, he doesn't mention that these outtakes still exist and, and can be viewed. Hmm. Um, so there is a way, again, it goes back to, you know, what do you do with that material that I was, you know, I felt very lucky as a, as a scholar that the filmmaker I was working on published a memoir while I was working on the project. But there's also, you also have to take a step back and, and think about how you will use that source. Because for me, the, what's interesting about the memoir is that there's so much missing from the memoir. And you can tell a story from, from what's missing. This seems like a good time, Jennifer, to ask you about your connection to Lanzmann and his family. Do you want to say something about that? So I, I um, had the opportunity to meet Lanzmann in 2008. Wow. Uh, when I um, moved to Paris to do the, the dual degree with Paris 7. And we actually met in the south of France because I'm originally from um, from the south, like the uh, Bordeaux Arcachon. And so we met at the Cap Ferré, which is across from Arcachon, it's, um, this little peninsula, and uh, sort of where I spent my childhood. So that's where we met. But I, I, you know, I told him about the project, and it's 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 very hard to interview Claude Lanzmann. I mean, he's the one who interviews. He doesn't. Um, so he asked me a lot of questions, and I was, you know, a graduate student. I was just, I had just come to France from, you know, from DC where I'd spent six months, you know, viewing everything that I could. So what was interesting is I didn't necessarily interview him mm. for the book. Uh, what ended up happening is actually, I'm very grateful to Lanzmann for helping me find an institution in Paris to do my dual degree. 
Uh, he's the one who actually helped me uh, establish that with Parisette. Uh, the person that I did interview is, is Corinne Kulmas, who uh, worked on show off, you know, from the beginning till the end. She was hired as one of Rosman's two assistants. Um, the other one was Irena Steinfeld, who was in Israel. And uh, the, he then hired Corinna. And Corinna just worked on the research phase, um, you know, trying to look for archival documents. She actually, you know, went to Germany and looked for uh, perpetrators, um, you know, knocking on doors of, of uh, perpetrators. And she was there then when they started filming. And then she was also during the editing, she would come very often to Paris to, to look at the product as it was evolving. So I, I was very fortunate that she gave me a lengthy interview in 2016. And that really helped in terms of gaining a, a different perspective on the film. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, I would have liked to have done more interviews, but many of the people who worked on the film have since passed away. William Luchonsky passed away in 2010. And he would have been, I mean, he was the cameraman that Lonsman worked with on his first film, Pourquoi Israel? And then he was one of the three cameramen that he worked with during the making of Shoah. Um, the other cameraman, Dominique Chapuis, also passed away. And then Lonsman's sound editor, Sabine Mamou, who actually was in charge of doing the transfer of the outtakes from Paris to DC, she also passed away. So unfortunately, I had a lot of um, missing perspectives that I would have loved to include. Mm -hmm. And that is something that the book really strives to do, is that it's a book about Lonsman, but it's also a book about everyone else who um, participated in this endeavor you know, with him over the course of, of 12 years. Jennifer, you just talked about the ethics of representation. And I guess I want to ask you about this other term that you use, the, am I going to say this right? The income possible? <laughs> <laughs> Are you laughing at my pronunciation? <laughs> no, no, no. It's funny because everyone, everyone always asks me about the income possible. I was just suddenly remembering um, in, in France, uh, PhD defenses are, are public. So anyone can come, you know, so family members oh, right, come yeah. and friends come. And I just remember that there was a moment when, when that came, came up and everyone started, I could see everyone pull out their phones trying to look up this term being like, did I hear right? Did she say impossible? I felt like she said something else. Yeah. You could make it incomposable. Like, especially I could think about if I was hearing it in French too, that I would also possibly hear lots of other kinds of things happening. Right. So, impossible. you know, you could just, yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, th that for me became, so I borrowed this term from Nozman. Actually, that's one of the things I borrowed from his memoir. Mm. Um, when he in this chapter that I mentioned earlier, from when he talks about 1942 and and the train ride from Clermont-Ferrand to to Paris, he talks about how his mother um, felt like he looked like a peasant and he looked very provincial, so she wanted to buy him shoes. And they went to this shoe store. I mean, it's it's very again prosthetic because of course shoes. You think of the pile of shoes, you know, sure. at Auschwitz. So he, they're in this uh, shoe store in Paris, and he says that his mother can't choose and that he's like him and that there's this massive pile of shoes. And suddenly he interjects and he says, you know, in the middle of talking about 1942, he says, you know, I, I did my um, master's degree on, on the incompossible, which is a term that Leibniz uh, forged. And hmm. so the incompossible is essentially, you know, in order to have, in order for something to exist, you have to exclude everything else. And Leibniz came up with the, the, the concept in order to think about the problem of good and evil. 
and to think about how, you know, God creates the best possible worlds, but he has to exclude things. So for, for Leibniz, you can think of it in terms of a, uh, a pyramid and inside the pyramid, you have little, you know, little squares, let's say, and that constitutes a possible world. And at the summit, you have the best possible world. And hmm. Lonsman then says, you know, it's not a coincidence that Showa is nine and a half hour long because I also can't choose and, but I had to choose. And, and that's when he says, you know, to, to choose is to kill. Um, so the incompossible is, is a fantastic metaphor for, for film editing because you, in order to make a film, you have to sacrifice something. You sort of make the best film possible, uh, but you can't include everything. And so there are choices that are made along the way. But unlike Lonsman, for Lonsman, it was very definitive, the incompossible. It's, you know, to choose is to kill. Whatever, you know, did not get to go in the film doesn't exist. And this is where Gilles Deleuze comes in, because the other philosopher who took a great interest in the incompossible is Deleuze. And Deleuze, for him, actually, incompossibles can coexist. So it was actually very, I was not you know, on Lonsman's side, I was actually more on Deleuze's side for actually reframing the, um, the incompossible in terms of thinking about the coexistence of outtakes in the finished film. And the incompossible is also very much related to a lot of work in Holocaust studies around the question of choice and choices mm. uh, faced by survivors. And so um, Lawrence Langer um, in the 80s coined the question of choiceless choice to talk about ethics and how you can't judge certain choices because they're completely choiceless. Individuals did not have to, you know, they, in order to survive, it was not even a question of choosing. They just had to do. Um, so the incompossible for me became a way of talking at once about the editing of the film. And it also was a way of talking about um, many of the stories of survivors that were interviewed um, mm-hmm. by Lonsman. And the question of choice didn't necessarily make it in the finished film, but it was definitely the paradigm, for instance, for, for the women survivors who were largely excluded, that all of them right. um, faced a, a traumatic choice. And the way they narrate the story, everything revolves around this choiceless choice or this incompossible, or another way that it was put in one of the final testimonies that Lonsman filmed with a, a woman survivor, Hannah Martin, talked about the tragedy of choice. And that's another way of, of talking about it, that there is a tragedy in that choice. Because for most of the individuals who were confronted with the choice, their survival depended on you know, someone else dying. Jennifer, we've already, you've already mentioned a couple of times the Eichmann trial, and we've talked about this. But in the second chapter of the book, you really zoom in on 1961 and thinking about the relationship of Shoah to the trial. And your phrase, I, I really like this phrase, where you talk about the obscured cinematic and historical filiation between the Eichmann trial in particular and Shoah. You talk about Hannah Arendt's report on the trial and the emergence of Holocaust memory in Israel. So do you want to tell us a little bit more about what's going on in this chapter and how the outtakes and the Shoah archive interact with the Eichmann trial for you? So the the question of 1961 obviously is related to Michael Rothberg's work on multidirectional memory. Mm -hmm. I quote uh, Rothberg a few times, but not really for more of his previous work on on Holocaust representation. But I wanted to think of 1961 as a marker in in French studies, um, amongst others. And to actually think about Shoah through the lens of the Eichmann trial, because it's, it's, it's never been done. 
Lonsman in his memoir says that there's no connection, that the Eichmann trial, I think his exact words were, was that the Eichmann trial was of no use to him. Huh. But to go back to your question about, is this a French film? This is also where context, you know, dictates some of the, some of the content of the film and, and the outtakes because Lonsman was in Israel. He had spent a lot of time in Israel in, in the sixties already. And there is a way in which he is working with a certain historical context and with the legacy of the Eichmann trial. For, from a very practical point of view, um, one of his assistants, Irena Steinfeld, that I, I was I emailed with her a few years back, and she said, you know, just from a practical point of view, the Eichmann trial gathered a certain number of, of eyewitnesses. So it was easy for them to actually contact the individuals who had already um, testified at the Eichmann trial because it was easy to find their names and to find, you know, ways of them. And, and you can make, you know, connections about um, questions, for instance, of survival or questions of uh, quote unquote passivity, questions of quote unquote collaboration. If you think about Hannah Arendt, uh, the question of the Jewish councils, all of the, the main questions raised during the Eichmann trial are the questions that Lonsman starts out with. The Eichmann trial is present uh, throughout, and then it, it it disappears by the you know by the finished film by the end of the the editing phase. Um, you do get one reference to the Eichmann trial um, in the finished film when one survivor mentions that he had been at the trial and, and is you know is not interested in, in really telling his story again. But for me, it, it's it was interesting to to compare the two you know processes and also think about are the the testimonies of individuals who testified at the Ekman trial, and then were interviewed by Nalsman, are they so different? And in many cases, they were not, because so much of the testimony actually depended on the survivor themselves. So, Jennifer, we've talked already about the role of women um, in, in the film, in Shoah, in the outtakes. That third chapter, Off Frame, Trauma and the Feminine, really focuses on the presence and absence of women in the finished film and the unused footage. And I just wanted to ask you to talk a little bit, not necessarily to sort of retread the ground that we've already covered on this set of issues, but to talk a little bit about gender, to talk about the significance of this sort of glaring absence relative to the moment when the film was made um, and how the, given the kind of place of Shoah in Holocaust history and filmmaking, um, what kind of longer term impact that has had in terms of shaping Holocaust history and memory? So what Lonsman's film, in a way, reflects a lot of the, the trends at the time. So gender studies and Holocaust studies didn't quite intersect until the late 80s. So in a way, the emissions of Shoah are, you know, a product of its Time, even though there were, you know, some work that was starting to be done already in, in, in the late seventies, uh, that was really for me, as I mentioned earlier, the starting point for the dissertation. For the book, I wanted to do something else. I, you know, I wanted to tell the, the story of the outtakes as, as a whole, but also what I wanted to do in the book for um, the third chapter on women is that I actually wanted to reinsert women as part of the narrative, rather than just isolate their stories. So what I do in that chapter is that I, you know, take their stories and, and the way that their, you know, their stories were were omitted, but then I connect them to other testimonies, whether testimonies in in the finished film or testimonies in in the outtakes, to show that actually even if Lonsman could not see them as 
subjects or individuals in, in, in the narratives he was trying to construct. He did interview them because it, it connected to many of the things he was um, investigating. So the question of, of Jewish councils, the question of um, the camp ghetto of Theresienstadt, which was a major chapter for, for Lanzmann, ghettos in, in, in general. And so for, there was something for me, there was a need in a way to not simply tell their stories, because that's also, I think, the difficulty in writing this book is you don't want it to just be a summary of, of the 220 hours that you watch and of these testimonies. And so contextualizing them specifically in terms of Lanzmann's project, part of the difficulty, and you know, and I can't speak for Lanzmann, but I, I do draw some conclusions in, in, in that chapter, which it was very difficult for him to identify with the women. And that there is, I talk about this in chapter two, but there is a strong identification with the men who are survivors. The other thing that is a major area of exclusion in the finished film um, is the story of wartime attempts to save European Jews. Mm -hmm. And so the fourth chapter, The Question of Rescue and Refugees, really focuses on this issue of attempts to save Europe's Jews and the relationship, the sort of place of the allied forces and allied countries. Could you tell us a little bit about what your focus is in that chapter? So that was the, the chapter that was probably the most difficult to write precisely mm -hmm. because there's no trace of that in the finished film. You know, it's, it's, it's because so much of the book is about rethinking the finished film through the lens of, of the outtakes when there's actually nothing in the finished film. It's harder to talk about choices because Lanzmann made, you know, a very definitive choice, which was he has about 30 hours devoted to rescue and refugees. And he really made, I think in the book, I talk about it as a, a drastic cut. All of that uh, remained on, on the cutting room floor. And so it, it, there's that question too of how do, you, how do you talk about something that doesn't even have, you know, a mere trace? And I tried to find traces and, and there are individuals like Karski, Jan Karski, who is in the finished film, but he doesn't talk about, you know, he talks about visiting the Warsaw Ghetto, but he doesn't talk about coming to the United States and talking to President Roosevelt, for instance. Uh, but that for me wasn't, it was a fascinating chapter to write also because I think it was for Lanzmann the most difficult, maybe one among the most difficult parts to film because there are so many questions that we can ask retrospectively from today's point of view. You know, why wasn't anything done? Mm -hmm. What did people know? If they knew, then why didn't they do anything? Um, why, why weren't more Jews rescued? And it's a difficult chapter because he also approach this question from many, many different standpoints by interviewing individuals in the State Department, for instance, or by interviewing individuals who had just, you know, had been outside of politics, but tried to lobby in, in D.C. To, to have the United States do something. And then trying to think about individuals who were who were part of that story, like uh, Shmuel Zingelborn, who had been in, in the Warsaw Ghetto and then went to the United States and then went to London. And, and his whole cause was to you know, just tell the world what was happening in Poland. And then he committed suicide. And so he's a ghostly figure. And there are many ghosts in that chapter that um, I call them messengers of the catastrophe. These individuals who they somehow saw and they understood the gravity and the unprecedentedness of the situation in ways that others did not. So there were a lot of ways in which, in the end, Lanzmann couldn't really do much with this footage because if he did, I think a lot of the footage that got excluded from Shoah 
Lanzmann was also trying to avoid passing judgment. He doesn't want to make a film that just says the United States didn't do enough because there were individuals who did a lot and he did interview these individuals. Mm -hmm. And some of them say, you know, we didn't do enough. But that's that's not it. It didn't fit the story. And part of it, why it's fully excluded is that Shoah is a film about the East. The question of rescue brings us to the West, you know, to, to you know, Geneva or France or then the United States. And so there is an interesting cut also in terms of what Lanzman was trying to do in terms of the story he was trying to tell, which it really, you know, Shoah is a Hebrew word meaning catastrophe. It is a film about the catastrophe and about the destruction. It's not a film about rescue or even attempts at, at rescue. Does the commission have anything to do to make the film in a certain way, have anything to do with that particular? I mean, it may have something to do with other aspects of the film project, but I just wondered if the Israeli backing of the film could have anything to do. I don't know why. I'm just thinking about that. Like, does that have anything to do with that choice? It does in part. So it's interesting because according to Lonsman and, and his memoir, and again, because I don't have the paper trail, sure, you know, it's hard for me to figure out how the funding happened. But at one point, the film was taking too long and they stopped funding the film is the way he, he explains in, in his memoir. And that's when France stepped in. And initially, when he started working on the film in 1973 and then in 1974, he had to present his findings to a commission at Yad Vashem headed by um, Yehuda Bauer, Holocaust historian. The editing phase takes place in France. So there's not much presence of a commission at that point. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, why it's interesting to think about the trajectory of this film, that it's, it's, it is really transnational because it happens in many different places. But the construction of the film as such actually happens in, in the editing room in the suburbs of Paris. Mm -hmm. In his memoir, Lanzmann says that when he was commissioned to make the film, he was specifically asked, he was specifically told that there had not been a film just on the extermination. You know, because if you think about Night and Fog, Night and Fog is more about the camps. It, it, there are some references, but it's not a, a film about the final solution. And so Lanzman was asked to make, according to him, what he was told, the words that were used was not simply make a film about the Shoah, but a film that is the Shoah. And so that's a, that's a you know, he doesn't comment on that, but for me, I, that's a question I asked in the book. What does it mean to make a film that is the catastrophe, that is, mm. you know, the destruction itself? Again, that could be prosthetic remembering. <laughs> is that how it unfolded or, you know, is that how he remembers it? Or is that how he, you know, views his film? Because he himself had to make so many choices and, and leave so many people out from the film. I don't think from the documents that I found, initially what he envisaged was just a monumental film that would be about everything. Hmm. And he does say this in a letter that that's how he, he has a sense that it will probably be six to seven hours long and it's going to have different chapters. And one of the major chapters is the case of um, the Hungarian Jews because they were the last community, Jewish community remaining in Europe and they were deported starting in, in May, 1944. And so there were a number of questions in terms of, of rescue just around the Hungarian Jews and in a letter that I found, Lonsman says, you know, that's a major chapter of his film. So according to his narrative, the starting point is the destruction, but I think it actually evolves towards the destruction mm -hmm. as he films, as he understands what will be what he will be able to actually do with a film. And the commission at this point is actually, I think in, initially it was there just more to guide him in terms of the research. 
But by the end, it, it just, it becomes really a film about the destruction. And to answer your question, if we follow what Lonsman says, then it is what the commission wanted because he was commissioned to make mm-hmm. a film that was the Shoah and that is, you know, that it was about the Shoah and that is the Shoah itself. Right. But I think it's more complex than that. Something that comes up in this chapter, Jennifer, that I could have asked you about earlier, um, it's just something that fascinates me throughout this project and the history of uh, the film and how you talk about the film and the archive is this relationship between Lanzmann and Spielberg. Mm. Like the fact that Lanzmann had his objections to Schindler's List, the fact that Spielberg plays such an important role in the story of the archive of Shoah, and then what you talk about towards the end of chapter four, the idea that Lanzmann faced a similar kind of problem that he argues Spielberg fails to resolve in Schindler's List. And I'm just curious about that, what your thoughts are on, you know, the the role that Spielberg plays in all this. It's not a huge part of this project, certainly, but it, it was intriguing to me how Spielberg kind of comes up again and again in the, in the book. And that's why it's interesting, again, because so much of this book is about the mission. I find it quite fascinating that he writes about Schindler's List, but doesn't talk about, you know, the 30 hours that he recorded, where he himself asks a lot of similar questions of, you know, who who did what and, and what could have been done. So that's one aspect. And um, his sort of projection, the way you just summarized it, you know, he projects onto, onto Spielberg, you know, how do you make a film about the Holocaust and a film about saving Jews? You can't. If you make a film about the Holocaust, it's a film about destruction. And that was ultimately his conclusion. But indeed, that's why that, that text was important for me, because I felt like it was Lonsman talking about his own dilemmas in the editing room, that if he included his own investigation to the rescue of, of Jews, it, wouldn't, it would no longer be a film about destruction. And again, we go back to this question of the incompossible, that rescue and destruction are incompossibles. If you want to make a film about destruction, then it needs to be about destruction. It can't be about rescue at the same time. But the other irony is that the film archive at the, Holo- the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum was uh, funded by Spielberg, mm-hmm. uh, the Spielberg <laughs> Film and Video Archive, mm-hmm. which is a you know huge, huge irony because and Lonsman obviously was not thrilled with this idea that you know the outtakes were going into the you know Spielberg um, sure. archive so the two of them are connected you know and and it's 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 an interesting irony but it's for me in- interesting to think about how even a film that comes out after Shoah like Schindler's List can help us understand some of the choices Lonsman made yeah it's fascinating particularly since you know due to its length Primarily, probably that, you know, I think for a lot of people in North America, Europe, perhaps elsewhere in the world, I don't know, um, in terms of numbers, you probably know this better than I do. Certainly for my students, you know, Schindler's List is the more familiar film, which is mm-hmm. sort of absurd in some ways, but it's also just true. Um, so, yeah, the way that Spielberg's project of collecting then is somehow able to well, swallow up is not the right term, but, you know, um, incorporate Malzman is the, the, like, as you say, the irony of that is, is pretty intense. Um, the conclusion of the book, Jennifer, the deep time of testimony returns to this notion, deep time that crops up 
throughout the book. So I want to ask you about that. You close the book with the release of Four Sisters, um, Nolzman's last film using Shoah outtakes. So there's the presence of this archive. Nolzman uses the outtakes in various ways. Um, up to 2017. And then I I just have a question about the kind of status of the outtakes now and how, I know we can access them, but how open are they in terms of their not only being, having been preserved and digitized and all this, but open for use since they've been rehoused, I guess. So to answer the, the, the first question about deep time, so that concept, I mean, as you know, as a historian, it's a concept that's been uh, used uh, a lot in in, in recent years. Mm-hmm. In the context of media studies, it's been used to, to think about heterogeneous archives. And that's where I was going with the use of that in terms of the reintegration of the outtakes allows us to rethink some of the paradigms of Shoah and allows us to integrate heterogeneous voices, to go back to the question of the the silencing reenactment. And that's why I wanted to end with the idea of the deep time of testimony, that Shoah is known for all of the paradigms it produced, whether the omission of archival footage or reenactment, but that we can rethink a lot of these paradigms in the 21st century through other voices and other voices that were not necessarily considered. And I also, you know, this is one book on the outtakes. There can be other books on the outtakes. It's such a massive archive that I have one way of telling the story. And, you know, I suspect that as more and more scholars work on this material, there will be other ways of of also telling this story. And the question of of the use of um, the material. So individuals, you know, filmmakers, um, artists, you can uh, request permission to use some of the outtakes. Um, I believe that it's a maximum of 25% of your film can be outtakes. Hmm. So there are ways in which, and and outtakes have been, um, have been used. There's a documentary, it's uh, Spectres of Shoah. Uh, That's an interview with, with Lanzmann um, that uses some footage. There is a new documentary about Lanzmann's editors, Eva Postek, that also has some um, of the outtakes. So Outtakes have actually been used, not I think not for you know uh, commercial films. <laughs> I don't think these are films that you know these, these are films that um, circulate. The Spectres of Shoah was nominated for an Oscar. Um, mm-hmm. What will become of all you know th- that footage? That's another question. If someone such as uh, Dominique Nolzman, who is uh, Nolzman's widow and she's in charge of his sort of his legacy and estate, you know she could you know potentially make a film uh, as well. Um, I think what's incredible is simply that already this exists. And when I was at the New York Film Festival in 2017, when I saw the the Four Sisters, and that's the last time I saw Nozman, he came to present um, the Four Sisters. You know, he said that in rem- in thinking about making Shoah, he just felt that he just had to record individuals at all cost. That it just became about recording, 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 and that's why he did record the majority of the interviews between 1978 and 1979, because suddenly there's an urgency. He's met a number of people and he really has to get their stories, you know, for in front of the camera. And I just remember thinking, and I say this in, in the conclusion, that he, he could have never, you know, in 1978 or 1979, even imagined what the Holocaust Museum has done, which mm-hmm. is not only to salvage, you know, and, and transfer everything and preserve, but also digitize and actually make 
all of these outtakes available to, you know, individuals all over the world. What about the timing of the emergence of your project as a book? Jennifer, I'm just thinking about the release of Four Sisters, Longsman's death in 2018. How do you think about the project closing in and around the time of of his death? And I guess beyond that, not that that isn't a big enough kind of convergence, but beyond that, the timing of the release of this book relative to, you know, the state of Holocaust studies or thinking about filmmaking around the Holocaust, just any thoughts you have on the the moment of the emergence of your, your own book? Yeah, I think that, uh, you know, I didn't, didn't plan the, the release <laughs> in, in any way. And it's, I do remember, though, I was writing the book, I, I wrote the book in Los Angeles. And when I found out from the archivist that Lonsman was going to be in New York for the premiere of The Four Sisters, I, I knew that I had to go, not only to see the film, but also I, I thought that it would probably be the last time that I, that I would see Lonsman. Mm. There's a way for me in which the outtakes, I think, raise so many questions. And that's, that's why I said um, in, the previous, in my previous answer that I think there are many more stories to tell about the outtakes. And there, you know, there's a lot more research to be done um, using the, the outtakes. I think what's incredible is that they, they haven't been used more. And I think they will be. I, I, I do think, you know, with my book and then there's uh, um, an edited volume that's coming out um, around the outtakes in May uh, 2020 mm-hmm. um, with Wayne, Wayne State University Press. Um, more and more, you know, I think there is a way in which different scholars from different disciplines, I think that's the important part that you can have not only film scholars, but also historians actually look at this material as, as an immense wealth of, in terms of testimonies or perspective on, on a historical event. Because I think what's incredible is when Lonsman died, very few, the obituaries all mentioned, I mean, there was a, a number that went around for years and it still hasn't been corrected, which is that there was 350 hours of outtakes. And you find that a lot, you know, a lot of the obituaries just mentioned that, but no one no one actually was asking questions about what happened to all these outtakes. Huh. So I think we're really at a moment where it's going to take a little bit more time, but the outtakes are becoming more and more visible, um, not only because of, of my book and, and other books, but also because of the work that the, um, I mean, I have to say that really the monumental, extraordinary work that the archivists have done at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum. Well, Jennifer, I have taken up a lot of your time <laughs> and I know that, it is December 24th, so Christmas Eve for <laughs> whoever cares about Christmas Eve. And you are leaving <laughs> tomorrow for Paris, and I want to give you a chance to take a breath and maybe pack a bag before you go on your trip. So the last question, what are you working on now? So I am working on, so as someone, as you know, by this point who works uh, you know, at the sort of intersection of history and, and film studies, I'm working on a history of the tracking shot. Um, so the book is tentatively called Notes on the Tracking Shot, The Missing Images of French Cinema. Huh. And it is, uh, it goes back to that article from the Cahiers du Cinéma that I mentioned earlier by Jacques Rivette. Yeah. 
since he, you know, narrowed uh, the film Capo down to one tracking shot and then invested the tracking shot as sort of the site of morality and, and ethics of representation. But it's trying to recover, because I always work with missing images, it's trying to recover um, different tracking shots that are not necessarily accounted for in the history of French cinema. We remember Rivette's text, for instance, but we don't. Rivette is writing the text in 61, so towards the end of the Algerian War of Independence. He doesn't talk about that context and so the book actually moves from the colonial period and sort of some of the first tracking shots in the colonies to periods of decolonization. And it, um, the second chapter of the book deals with disability as a missing image in French cinema and then moves through the post-war period and, and then to the present in France. Well, it sounds like you and I have a lot more to talk about, Jennifer. But for now, I just want to say thank you so much for joining me and for writing this book. Thanks so much for having me, Roxanne. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in French Studies, a podcast series on the New Books Network.